Thank you, worship team. It's always such a blessing to have uh, um, those precious moments leading into the reading of God's word where we can have our hearts set into focus and we can get our thoughts centered on Christ. (sighs) Pastor Victor is um, visiting with family this week. Um, No one knows when he's coming back, so... We're just going to wing it till he gets here, I think. Um, but he's been so faithful to lead us through the, book of, the gospel of John, and, uh, and I hope you guys have been as blessed by that as, as, as I have been. And so we're going to carry on uh, in, in the book of John. And as I was preparing for this morning, my, my initial plan was to cover the whole chapter 9 today. Uh, but as I got into it, as I was praying and as I was studying, I really feel like there, there are two kind of... Uh, crucial ideas that this chapter revolves around. Uh, and so we're going to split those in half. We're going to do the first half of chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to do the, 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 the next half next week. Um, and, uh, and what the whole chapter revolves around, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. I'm going to play my, my hand early uh, so that, that way if you fall asleep, you won't miss anything. Um, but uh, there's these, there are these, these two crucial uh, statements or, or, or debates, okay, where, 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 and, and they, they center around this scandalous healing of a blind man. Uh, it wasn't the first time Jesus healed, and it's not the only time he healed um, someone who was blind. Um, but uh, as we are going to see in this passage, Jesus focuses, and his whole ministry is focused, and as Pastor Victor has brought us back to you over and over again, this idea and the theme of he has to be about the works of the Father. So everything Jesus says, everything he does, um, it's all about the works of the Father. And he's going to bring that back into the spotlight in uh, the first half of chapter 9. And then in the second half, we're going to wrestle with this idea next week of what does real blindness look like. Um, the, the, the Jews and the Pharisees had, had to wrestle with the aftermath of what they could not deny of a man born blind and healed and restored to full vision by this man called Jesus, and how did they wrestle with that reality, and how do we wrestle with the reality of Jesus' words that, um, that some of us maybe are still blind and in need of true sight. That's for next week, though. Uh, so for this week, we're going to be focusing on the urgency of the Father's work, okay? Because in our lives, there are so many things that, um, that are calling for and that, that demand from us a sense of urgency, right? Um, no matter what stage in life you're in, all of us in here can think about something that if it were to come up, if it were to grab our attention, there would be this immediate sense of urgency in our hearts, right? Um, and we would flock to that. We would run to that. And one of the most difficult things about, uh, about going through life is discerning uh, the difference between things that are important, some things are important, and things that are just urgent. Because not everything that's urgent is also important, and knowing the difference can be, uh, can be a big challenge. Uh, at my last church in West Virginia, uh, for the last uh, year or so that I was there, I was in charge of the benevolence ministry. Um, and so that's where we, you know, we tried to help people who needed um, help paying bills, if their, if their power bill was coming up and they couldn't afford it, or if they couldn't afford groceries, or whatever it may be. 
Um, and one, one of the, the hardest parts of that uh, was prayerfully discerning, Lord, um, we don't want to share necessarily in someone else's urgency. We want to do what you've called us to do. Uh, and so we had these checks and balances, you know, that, that, that it was this, this, this whole process. Uh, but I can't tell you how many times people would call the church saying, not, not just, hey, my, I can't afford my, my rent this month, but like my rent is due or was due two months ago and I'm being evicted today, you know. Or, um, or they're, they're coming to shut off the power today. They're coming to repossess my car today. And so there's that sense of urgency, right? And so um, we, we felt as a church that, that, you know, we wanted to do, we wanted to be good stewards of what God's given us. And sometimes, and it sounds kind of cold at first, but sometimes sharing in someone else's urgency really isn't the best thing for that person, Right? Really, it's, it's not the, the healthiest thing for that person because we have to ask the questions, well, what about next month? What about next week? You know, are we just bailing them out for, for a one-time thing? Is there, is, is there a bigger issue here, right? Um, but there's all kinds of things in life that are challenging us and demanding from us a sense of urgency. So ask yourselves, what is it in, in your mind, in your heart, that right now you would say, okay, if I got this phone call or if I got this email or if I had this conversation, boom, I'd be right there. I would have a sense of urgency to that, okay? Um, and, and understand that what Jesus is calling us to in Scripture over and over again, when he says, I have to be about the Father's work, from the time he's 12 years old in the temple saying, don't you know I have to be in my Father's house, I have to be doing my Father's business, that Jesus is calling us to a sense of urgency for God's work, all right? And that doesn't necessarily mean evangelism, although it could mean that. It means we have to be about the Father's business. So um, um, as he walked along, so this is chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. I'm going to stop already because I find the opening to this chapter so uh, so funny, um, if we remember at the end of chapter 8, an attempt has just been made on Jesus' life, right? Remember that from last week? He's, he's debating with the Jews. He's, he's trying to reveal. And again, there's, a, there's this theme of revealing who Jesus is, right? His whole, his whole mission is to reveal the Father, to reveal his identity. And at the end of chapter 8, it says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And there's that, that, that definitive statement of divinity where it says, I am. And, and the Jews understood what Jesus meant by that. He's claiming to be God. And so they pick up stones to, to execute him, right? It says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And we understand they're, they're not just picking up rocks, right? They're not just like like bullying him, okay, they're picking up, they're, they're ready to kill him. Jesus has, has basically signed his death sentence by claiming to be God, okay? Um, and, and from between chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's really no time transition. We get the impression that this is shortly thereafter, and it says, as he walked along, you know, just kind of unbothered, unhurried, and unhindered, because he is about the Father's business. And I can't help but wonder how many times in our lives, because like, I would think that, that Jesus would at least want to keep a low profile after that. Right? People are trying to kill him now. And um, we don't have the impression that he's trying to hide or that he's trying to avoid the public spotlight. Uh, there was a time in his ministry when, when, when he did, 
when he said, you know, my time has not yet come, he would heal someone and say, don't, don't tell anyone because my time has not yet come. Um, and he wouldn't do that out of fear, but again, because he, the father hadn't told him yet that the time was right. But now the father has revealed to him the time is now, and Jesus does not care about the threats to his life. He doesn't care about the public opinion. He doesn't care about who may or may not see what he says and does because the Father's work takes preeminence. It takes priority. Um, and so he's just walking along. There's no, there's no fear or, or, or hurry to his pace. Um, years ago, um, when, when I was a youth pastor before, we used to do this thing. Some of you may remember. Uh, we did this thing every year uh, called Service Week where we would go and... Um, and it was basically a mission trip uh, to our own community. It was like a mission trip without the trip. It was just a mission for a whole week. And, and one of the things we did uh, every year was uh, I, would, I, would, I would get these students together, and, and, and uh, the ones who had done it knew what they were in for, and then the new ones got to be surprised. Uh, but I would say um, every one of you is going to share your faith at least one time this week. I don't know if you signed up for that or not, but that's what we're doing and so we would take a day just to do training, just to say, here's how you share your faith or your testimony or whatever. And then we'd go out to the malls, you know, and, and we'd break them up two by two. And I'd say, all right, your goal, you're not trying to save anyone. You know, you don't have like a quota. I just want you to get into at least one conversation about Jesus where you can talk about what he's done in your life, right? Um, and so that, that was one of the things we did every year. One year, we had these, uh, these siblings um, and and when and they, they signed up for this event, and I remember their their parents coming to me and saying, um, "Look, we think what you're doing is is good and 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 it's great, but but please don't make our kids do this because uh, apparently one of them their, their their job was was connected to one of the places we were going, and they were worried about the risk of someone associating their kids back to them." Um, and what that would mean for their jobs. That's a legitimate concern. Okay, they, weren't, they probably weren't wrong to, to be thinking about that. But in their minds, the risk of embarrassment or worse uh, superseded the work of the father. And so they had asked their kids to be excused from that, and so you know, we respectfully um, did that. But I never forgot that because... Um, and, I, and I don't mean to throw anyone under the bus. I, you know, uh, we all have to be obedient to what God tells us to do. But how easy is it for us to let the pressures and the dangers and the threats, some of them are real, some of them are just perceived threats. They're not even real threats. How easy is it for us to let all of those things pressure us into, into losing the preeminence of the work of God and how we live and what we do? Okay. And here's you know, Jesus and his disciples following his example years later under the threat, the constant threat of death. And they're just strolling along looking for opportunities to glorify the Father. So as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. And those of us, many of us have studied this passage before. If you've read it or if you've heard it preached, you, you know that there existed this stigma in Jewish culture, that if you were born with some kind of physical defect, especially blindness, or if you were uh, born lame or with something else, um, they believed that if that was from birth, it wasn't from an injury that you incurred in life, but if you were born that way, it was because either you somehow had sinned before birth or 
that your parents had, had committed some great sin, and because of that sin, God is punishing you. Um, and so there were even some Jewish rabbis, not very many, but there were a few who taught that, that you, could, you could even commit um, a, a, a bad enough sin in the womb where God would punish you by causing you to be born blind, okay? Um, and so, and so that, that stigma existed there. Uh, and, and part of it, we, we, we might be able to understand some of that. Like, it sounds weird to us. Like, why would you believe that? But uh, we have to remember all the Old Testament passages where when dealing with the, 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 the temple sacrifices, what was the, the, the rule for the temple sacrifices? If you brought a lamb to be sacrificed, it could not be blind. It could not be lame. It could not have any physical defects, right? So the sacrifice had to be perfect. And if you brought... Um, in an imperfect sacrifice, then it would be rejected. So possibly some of them misapplied that, that rule to say, okay, that means that if we're born with some kind of physical defect, that means God has rejected us. Um, and then passages like um, Leviticus 21, 17 through 18. Let's look at one of these as just, just as an example, just so maybe we have an idea of why they have this stigma in Leviticus 21, verses 17 and 18, it says, Speak to Aaron. And this is, so God's talking to Moses. He's saying, here are the rules for, uh, for, for what's acceptable in terms of sacrifices. It says, Speak to Aaron and say, No one of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near one who is blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long uh, or one who has a broken foot or a broken hand. Or, and it goes on and on. And this is a long list of possible physical defects. And um, I think it's, this is in, 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 in this translation, you know, um, or a limb too long. Like, what's the standard for a long limb? I've got long arms. I don't know if that would qualify me or not, but these were the things where uh, God is telling Mo- God is giving Moses this command. He's saying, for the priesthood, for those who, who work in the temple, who, who offer sacrifices, if they're born with, with, with these things, then they are not allowed to offer the sacrifice. Um, and so we read that, and like, well, that's kind of harsh. What's up with that, God? Um, but if we, keep, if, if we keep reading, we will see that God was not disqualifying these individuals from, from partaking in the meal from the sacrifice or from the fellowship of the community, but they simply were not allowed to be the, the, the priest offering it. And so possibly the Jews saw that, they read that, they heard it, and they thought, okay, that means if you're born this way, then God's, God has kicked you out. You know, they, they kind of took that to, to an extreme. But we know from looking back in time and from the testimony of Hebrews, especially the, the book of Hebrews, that the entire priesthood was always meant to point to Jesus, right? So Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's the fulfillment of all these things. Um, and so, and so these, these disqualifiers of offering, um, of offering the sacrifices were just meant to be a picture of that one day, one day a perfect high priest is coming. One day a perfect sacrifice is coming. And you guys can't be perfect on your own, all right? And so these rules are here to remind you of your constant imperfection so that it wells up within you this desire and a longing for God's promise to be fulfilled in the Messiah. All right, so those things were meant to point to Jesus and to bring about humility and perspective, but instead uh, they ended up building into the Jewish culture this prejudice, this stigma, 
where, again, if you were born blind, you were considered re- rejected by God, when instead God's like, no, 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 those are the ones that, that you, that, who, who need me the most. Um, so not only was, was there this social and religious stigma, but then if you were born blind, you couldn't go out and get a job. There, was, there, there weren't any, you know, crafting jobs or things that you could do blind. You couldn't defend yourself. You couldn't protect yourself from thieves or robbers or, 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 or worse. So the situation of, of a person born blind, again, if you incurred an injury in life, like someone punches you in the face and all of a sudden you're blind, all right, there, there, there were social structures in place that would still care for you in those situations. But if you were born that way, then it was like, well, we can't, you, you might as well be a leper, like you were unclean. Okay, so Jesus is walking along, sees a man blind from birth, and it says uh, his disciples ask him a question in verse 2. It says his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? There it is. Rabbi, who sinned, um, this man or his parents? So they're automatically operating under that, that assumption, oh, there's a blind man, and, and, and we know that he's been Blind from birth. So, so this is the question they choose to ask. Who sinned? Him or his parents? And one of the things I, I do appreciate so much about the ministry of Jesus, not just in Scripture, but today, is that Jesus is not offended or, or, or against his followers asking difficult questions. In fact, I always tell um, you know, students in the past that I've had in, in ministry, don't be afraid to ask God tough questions, right? If God's not big enough to handle our hard, sincere questions, then I'm not sure he's, he's the God that, that we're reading about in Scripture. Now, now Jesus, like if someone came to him with antagonism just to kind of trap him or whatever, he wasn't having that, okay? But if you came to him with sincerity and you were sincerely searching and you had a difficult question, Jesus never rebuked, he never pushed away, he never said, you, if, if you ask that question, you don't have enough faith. You know, if you ask that question, that just means you're not trying hard enough, all right? That was never Jesus' response. He always welcomed, welcomed and invited those questions, and I think the same is still true today. Um, so we can't be afraid of the difficult questions, but sometimes, sometimes when we ask these difficult questions, I think God's answer to us is that, well, you're asking the wrong question. Because you're asking a question based on an assumption that I don't share with you. Okay, and these disciples, they were asking the wrong question. We would think that after all the time they spent with Jesus, after all the miracles they've already seen, they've, they've already seen him extend a welcoming arm to, to, to the prostitute, to the Samaritan, to the tax collector, right? To the drunkard, to the sinners, all right? They've seen that. They've experienced that. We might think, all right, their question should be, Lord, what are we, we going to do for, for, for this guy? We've done so much for, for everyone else. Lord, will you heal him also? Or, Lord, how can we help him? Um, but instead, they, they allow the man's physical condition and his social status to, to devolve into like a theological discussion instead of looking for the opportunity to glorify God and to see the Messiah work, and to see Jesus revealed even more so, they're like, okay, let's, let's talk theologically about why this is, all right? Again, um, God's not afraid of our, our questions. We should ask questions, but, 
Um, sometimes, and, and this, here, here's, what, here's what we can't miss, because sometimes we have the same risk of the disciples, and the, the, the assumption of the disciples about another person nearly causes them to miss the glory of God revealed in that person's struggle. Okay? So maybe instead of asking God, uh, Lord, can you take away this suffering? Maybe the right question is, Lord, how are you going to be glorified in my suffering? Because Scripture tells us over and over again that suffering is intended. God allows suffering to draw us closer to him in humility. Maybe instead of asking God, um, you know, uh, Lord, can, can you change that person's heart because they're living it in a way that makes me uncomfortable? Or they're, they're, they're saying things I don't agree with. Lord, can, can you change that person? Maybe our prayer should be, Lord, would you change me to be, to be a better representation of Jesus to that person? Lord, can you change me so that you can be more glorified in how I interact with them? Right? If, if our questions to God centered more around searching for the glory and the revelation of who he is to us and to those around us, I believe we would see so, so much more of him. But so, so many of our questions revolve around our, our uh, discomforts, the things that, that make us upset. Um, we need to learn to ask the right questions. So uh, the narrative challenges us to rethink our perceptions of others and to closely examine the stigmas and the stereotypes that we often cling to and that often dictate whether our hearts are filled with compassion or with disdain for another human being. Okay, if, you're, if the way you're thinking about another person and the way you're praying about another person um, fills your heart with anything but compassion for that person, then I think you're asking the wrong question. Okay, because that's not the heart of Christ. Because whether it was prostitute, tax collector, adulteress, Samaritan, or a blind sinner, Jesus repeatedly saw through the social stigmas and labels imposed by both culture and religion and instead redeemed the reality of divine image bearing that God has imbued upon all of us. And that's what we need to, rem- to remember all the way back from Genesis. Every human being is a bearer of the divine image. And the will and the purpose and the glory of God is in redeeming that in each of us, all right? Um, So what could the testimony and the power of the church accomplish for the kingdom if we took a similar view of other people in our day-to-day lives? Instead of looking at them and wondering, oh, they're in a bad place. I wonder how they got there. Uh, Who cares how they got there, all right? How is Jesus going to be glorified in that, right? Okay, so Jesus says... um, In verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work, so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says again, he was born blind, so, 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 you know, cut out born blind and fill in any struggle that you are going through or perhaps any struggle that you see someone else going through, all right? Jesus says, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. What could God do in our lives if every struggle, every pain, every hurt, and every tragedy brought to us that mindset, Lord, 
how will your works be revealed in this situation? As we have seen, um, as, Victor, as Pastor Victor has shown us over and over again in the book of John, uh, the works of God is a recurring theme in the gospel of John and in Jesus' ministry altogether. Um, so I don't have these on the slides. I'm just going to kind of go through this pretty quickly. In John chapter 4, verse 34, after meeting with a Samaritan woman, um, Jesus says that his food, because the, the disciples come to him and say, you know, Lord, are you hungry? We brought food. Jesus said, my food is to do the works of him who sent me, the works of the Father. Um, in John 5, 36, Jesus says that the Father's works testify to who he is. If you, if you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, he says, look at the works his Father has done. Those testify to who I am. And uh, he's questioned about what works, when he's questioned about what the works of the Father actually are, he says the work of the Father is this, to believe in him who he sent. And of course, as I said earlier, we can't forget when he was just 12 years old um, in the temple, debating with the scholars, and he's tell, he tells his mother, I have to be about my father's business. I have to be doing the things that relate to my father. So this was the, the mindset, just the, the perspective, the, the obsession even, I would say, that, that pushed Jesus forward. And that's where Jesus, if, if anything gave Jesus a sense of urgency, it wasn't fear, and it wasn't anxiety, and it wasn't worrying about popular opinion. It was the works of the Father. And so with his answer to their question, Jesus invites his disciples, and he invites us along with them, to broaden and expand our perspectives on what earthly suffering and earthly tragedy um, can bring about. And he cuts to the root of what troubles the disciples and us sometimes regarding this whole question of suffering. How many of you have ever heard that question posed by, by someone who is, who is skeptical or, or even antagonistic towards the gospel? What is the number one question you will hear anyone who, 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 who denies God, right? We, we, we know this because it's, it's always, if God is good, then why is there suffering, right? If God is so good and loving, then why do good people suffer? Why does anyone suffer? I can't tell you how many times that question has been, has been brought up to me, and, um, and, and it is a stumbling block. And, and, and sometimes it's just an excuse for, for people who have a, a hard heart anyway. But there are times when there are sincere seekers who can't get over this idea. Lord, if, if you made the world, and if you're truly all-powerful, and if you truly love me the way that the Bible says you do, then and why, and, and not just suffering, not just inconveniences, not just discomforts, but why, why are children dying of horrible things all over the world? Why is there war? Why, why is there famine? Why are people going hungry? Lord, aren't you in control? All right, and so we, we bring this question to, to God of suffering, and Jesus challenges our presuppositions there. He challenges us to rethink the way we think about suffering, not as a sign that God's oblivious, not as a sign that he's powerless, but as an opportunity for God to continue to redeem his creation and to reveal more of himself to us. We see brokenness all around us. We hear of unspeakable horrors and tragedy going on all over the world. And there's just something about the human condition that, that, that you know, desires to know why. We ask God why. And Jesus' answer is that the Father is in the constant business. He's constantly working. The Father is, in, is constantly working uh, 
to redeem our tragedies and to bring life where there is death and to bring sight where there is blindness. Because this isn't the world. This, the world is not in, 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 in the condition that God made it in, right? Like when God made it, it was perfect. And we're living in a broken world. And so some of these things are just the result of living in a broken world. And God wants to invite us into the process of redeeming those things and bringing the healing. And we also need to be aware of this. Just because um, we, we, we can read these accounts and we can think about our own struggles. And there have been times in my life where I've prayed for someone I care deeply about to be healed. Right? And they're not healed. And so, again, the typical question, the, the thing that we would maybe default to would be like, Lord, why aren't you healing? Uh, what is wrong? What is the hindrance? Is my faith not strong enough? Do you not care about this person? Did they sin and that's why they're being punished? Right? Um, but we need to remember that God is not always most glorified by physical healing. And that's a difficult truth. For us, if our prayer in our heart truly is the glory of God, it truly is seeking for God to be revealed, then we have to accept the reality that sometimes, and, and He'll reveal to us how this works at some point, sometimes God is not most glorified by our physical healing. And I think about the Apostle Paul as a prime example, right, where he says, I have this thorn in my side. We don't know exactly what it was. Some people think maybe he had trouble seeing. Some people think he had um, a speech impediment. It could have been anything. Um, and he, he testifies, Paul testifies, I prayed three times that God would heal me, that God would, re- would, would remove this, this thorn in my ministry. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to re- remove that. I'm not going to physically heal you, Paul. Because my grace is sufficient for that struggle. And because of that struggle, because of that perceived weakness, my strength and my glory is going to be made all the more evident through your life to those around you. Right? So, again, Jesus is about the work of the Father. And he says, we must work the works of him who, who, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So there's that urgency. Jesus understands that his time in ministry on the earth was coming to an end. And so that's what fills him with a sense of, of urgency. Um, and then he says, um, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And there's so much to unpack just in that statement, I am the light of the world. We've heard it so many times um, we sing songs about it, but, but, uh, the, but just the, the whole idea of, of, of light revealing, light reveals truth. Jesus came to reveal truth, and then he says, I am truth. His whole mission, his whole purpose is to reveal himself, to reveal God, to, 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 to reveal the, the creator to a creation that has lost sight of him. Okay, um, so I think this is the crux around which the whole first section of this chapter revolves. Right, so night is coming, darkness is right around the corner, and we, as representatives of God's kingdom, must be about the works of the Father while we have time and opportunity to do so. We don't have time to fear the antagonism of the world around us. We don't have 
um, time to sit there and debate theological issues that are, are good to know and they're fine to have an opinion on, but if they're taking up time that could be spent in revealing Jesus to the world, we don't have time for that. We don't have time to pick and to choose who is worthy of God's compassion. We don't have time to pick and to choose who is worthy of our time in the healing that God is trying to reveal through Jesus. We don't have time to sit around and allow our own struggles and our own disabilities and our own insecurities to distract us or excuse us from the work of the kingdom. If the heart of Jesus is moved to urgency by the glory of God and the work of God and, uh, and, 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 and compassion for the brokenness he sees around him, then what moves our hearts to urgency? Um, as I said, there's a lot to unpack with the whole I am the light of the world uh, phrase. A few things that, uh, that Jesus came to reveal, because uh, again, his chief mission on earth was to reveal, which is light reveals. Um, I have these verses on the slides. It says, um, he reveals God's grace in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to turn there. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says, uh, talking about Jesus, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through, through, through the gospel. So Jesus, uh, he reveals God's grace. And then in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 21, we're going to see that he reveals our own sin. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, wait, right. I have the wrong page, I'm sorry. Um, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So as, as the light of the world, Jesus, he reveals God's grace. He reveals the, the uncomfortable parts about ourselves that we would rather not see. You know, if you've been... Sitting in a dark room and um, and like your, your your eyes adjust to to the darkness, right? And you're kind of getting comfortable. And then someone turns on a, a bright light. What's your first reaction? You're like, ah, right? You're like, oh no, get away, right? Have you ever been asleep? Your eyes are closed, and someone turns on a light, and like, even through your eyelids, you know, the lights like penetrate. Like, ah, it's like, you know. The audacity. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, light, light uh, when, when, it, when it's first revealed, it's not always comfortable. Um, it it kind of rouses us. And, and so Jesus shines that light of discomfort on the areas of ourselves that we would rather keep hidden. Lord, I would rather not deal with that. If you shine light into that area of my life, I'm going to have to deal with it. And I'm not comfortable with that. Or, Lord, I would rather, uh, you know, people not know about this part of my life. Okay, but when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he reveals the parts of, our, of uh, the, the, the deepest corners of our hearts, um, 
we, we reject that. We, we repel against that. We, we, we shy away from it. We shield ourselves from it. Okay, but, but that's part of what it means when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I, I reveal God's grace, but I also reveal the parts of humanity that aren't so pretty, that we need to deal with. Um, and then uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 3, it says, He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he reveals God's grace. So he is a beacon of grace. He draws us by his kindness. He draws sinners who are in need of grace. He reveals that sin to sinners, and it sometimes is uncomfortable. And he is the exact representation of God. If you want to know, we've heard this so many times before, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And you know what the powerful thing about that is? Um, over and over again, Paul says, he, he, he doesn't call us Christians, right? He calls us in Christ, Okay. So the, the intention is, is, is supposed to be the world can't see God, so we have Jesus. So Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus has ascended to be with the Father, and now he, by the Holy Spirit, is in us. That means in the high and holy calling of Christianity, for a creation that is incapable of seeing the Creator, they are intended to be able to look to his people to understand who God is. How, how are you allowing a lost and dying and broken world to see God more clearly? How am I, how are any of us, reflecting the person, the nature of God to the world who needs his grace, who needs to have that light shown in those dark areas of our lives? All right, that's what Jesus did. And that's the mission he's called us to carry on now in his absence. So much more we could go into with the light of the world, but we're going to move on for now. Um, in verse 6, so here's where we get to the actual healing. Um, it says, when he had said this, <laughs> I, um, I, I, read, I read an article recently, so, so uh, you know, if you ever aspire to, to, to be a pastor or a preacher, then don't do this. Um, I read an article recently where a pastor was preaching on this very um, passage, and as an illustration, I guess to make sure that the, like, the congregation was awake, like he literally brought someone up on stage and like, reenacted the whole thing. Um, you know. It says, uh, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes. It was a very interesting news article I read. Um, and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And that was the word for scent. More on that in a minute. Uh, then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, uh, but it's someone, who, it's, it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. 
They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Okay, so we're going to unpack this a little bit, okay? Um, First of all, uh, saliva (laughs) is no different culturally back then than it is now, right? If someone comes up to you and spits in your face, you're not going to be like, oh, thanks for that, right? I mean, um, uh, as far as I'm aware of, there's no culture. Maybe there is. I don't know. I'm I'm not that well. But no civilized culture that I'm aware of, like, looks upon that as something... Uh, as a way of, of helping, okay? So, so here's this man. He's blind. He's, he's calling out for help. Jesus spits into the ground. He makes mud, and he rubs all over the man's eyes um, and then tells him to go to this pool. Um, and this pool of Siloam, it was, uh, this, this pool was dug out by King Hezekiah from the Old Testament like hundreds of years before, and it was meant to divert water away from invading armies. Just a, just a little bit of historical background here. Um, uh, it was located outside the city. So that's, that's important for what we're going to talk about. This pool, it, it's, it's not like it was in the middle of, of the city. It was outside the city walls because it was, meant, it was used as a military tactic. Um, where you would find the Pool of Siloam now is not where it was uh, at this time because it's been torn down and rebuilt. So that's important to know. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is um, this man would have had to feel his way, work his way through a crowd, going downhill um, because the Temple Mount was you know, elevated, um, work his way through the crowd that was gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was a big crowd, work his way outside the city gates, down to this pool, and find his way to get into the pool. Um, we don't have any indication from Scripture that he had help. Uh, because of his social status, it was unlikely anyone was willing to help him. Um, but he goes. He says, sends him to the pool of Siloam. And it's like scripture makes it a point to, to translate that word for us because it means sent or to send, right? Uh, the man goes, um, having been uh, you know, treated in a way most would consider offensive, not being able to see where he's going, having to fumble his way through a crowd down to a pool and then wash. The whole time, he has no proof that this is even going to work. He can't see. Jesus hasn't even um, like revealed much about himself to the guy. We, we see that in his conversation with the people afterwards. They're like, well, who is he? Where is he? And the guy's like, I don't know. I don't, all I know is I did what he told me to do, and now I can see, right? So I think there are, there are some parallels that we're supposed to look at between the blind man situation and where Jesus finds us today. So I'm going to go through a few of these parallels that that I can find, and maybe you can find a few more. Um, so the blind man's physically blind before he encounters Jesus. Um, we are all spiritually blind without Christ. Uh, and again, Jesus comes to reveal, to reveal truth, to reveal light. Um, that, that implies that there is a level of blindness before that. Uh, the blind man, he could have been offended by Jesus' healing agent of choice. Anyone else probably would have. Um, and Scripture testifies about itself that the gospel is offensive, right? The gospel, like Jesus, he, 
And who knows why he does? Like, he never heals the same way twice. And that's one of the beauties of, of how we, we have to be careful, church. Here's a, like a side note. We have to be careful, church, that we don't get into ruts of doing things the same way we always do just because it worked before, okay? Or to think, well, this is how God worked in the past. We just got to keep replicating that, and it will continue to bring about God's glory. Okay? Jesus healed in so many different ways, and, and he never repeated himself. And we, that, that, that means that we depend on the Spirit's leading and not on tradition and history's leading, right? Okay, come back from side note. So, um, so he, Jesus could have been worried about, oh, I can't use my saliva. That might offend him. He might not listen. All right, the gospel's offensive. We can't withhold truth for fear of offending people. Um, Jesus offended people more than once. And, you know, as Pastor Victor was talking about the, when he fed the 5,000 and they followed him afterward, and he offends them by saying, um, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh. Jesus could have phrased that in a much more palatable way, so to speak. Um, but he intentionally uses offensive words to separate those who were just following him to get their tummies fed and those who were serious about him as their Messiah. Right? So the gospel divides. It does, and it does offend. Um, the blind man had to make his way through the crowds to the pool in order to see, trusting that what Jesus said would happen, trusting that Jesus would be revealed. We have to make our way through life. Oftentimes not knowing where we're going, um, what's going to happen next, who we're going to bump into, but trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, trusting that Jesus will reveal when the time is right. You can ask my wife about this. I despise using the word journey for things because it bothers me. Like you see all these social media posts, oh, this is my, this is my journey. And I'm like, ah, oh. I feel like sometimes we use the word journey to, to, to make ourselves feel better about not reaching goals, okay? But that's, that's my, that's, that's kind of, I'm, okay, anyways. Uh, in this case, I'm okay using the word journey, okay? Uh, because the blind man has to journey. It is, it's a process to where he meets Jesus to the place of healing. And life for us, I'm okay with this, okay? Life for us is a journey where we don't always know where we're going. We don't always know where Jesus is leading us or at what point we're going to see everything he intends for us to see. We just go having faith that we will see one day, right? Um, so the people were astonished and confused by the blind man's change. Hopefully when people encounter us and encounter Jesus in us, they see enough of a difference to be astonished and confused. Because whatever the man looked like, enough people became aware of his transformation. He didn't have to go looking for people to tell. They came to him. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what happened to you? You are clearly different. Have people come up to us because of Jesus in us and said, whoa, 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 what happened to you? You're clearly different, okay? Um, people asked him what happened and how he was changed. Scripture tells us, always be prepared to give an answer for those who ask for the hope that is in you. Because the hope that is in us is different than the hope that is in the world around us. And if our hope looks like worldly hope, people have no reason to ask us about Jesus, Okay? Um, 
Because of that, he had opportunity to take others to Jesus. You know, they, they asked him, where is he? Where is this man who healed? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be great? How easy would that be? Uh, this is the kind of things that, that, that we long for. Like, how easy would it be if someone came up to you and was like, hey, show me how to get to Jesus? Wow. I mean, those are the opportunities. We're like, Lord, just, you know, if someone, uh, I've got a really good friend um, who, who he is a gift of evangelism, and, and I just love, I love hearing his stories. And he, he doesn't tell these stories to, like, uh, lift himself up, and he's never doing it in, in like, a, like, a, like, a bragging way. Um, in fact, most of the time he's doing it because he feels bad he didn't do more. But he will say, you know, I was at the gas station pumping gas, and I just felt the Spirit tell me to go to the person next to me and, and ask them if they know Jesus. And I was like, what? You know, like, I couldn't do that. I mean, I could, I just don't. You know, um, but his heart is so sensitive to the spirit's leading in that area, where um, like he 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 he's always looking for those opportunities. And I think most of us in here who love Jesus would say, Lord, we would love to have those opportunities, but our insecurities and our fears and our anxieties get in the way. For those of us like that, like me, how awesome would it be if people came to us and they're like, Hey, where can I find Jesus? <laughs> wow. Okay, let me tell you, right? Is the hope of Jesus shining, uh, it sounds cliche, it sounds so cliche, but it's so true. Is the hope of Jesus in you shining brightly enough where people see it and they come to you and they're like, hey, where is Jesus? Because you're clearly different. And we're different not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because Jesus has been revealed to us. Our eyes have been opened, and now we see. And because of that sight, our lives are different. We live differently. We speak differently. Everything about us is different. This is the work of the Father. This is what we are called to be partakers of. Um, so uh, what keeps us what keeps people from being as curious about Jesus in us as they were about Jesus in this situation? Um, this, is what, this is what should drive us to urgency. This is what should cause us to echo the words of Jesus. That night is coming. Like we, we have such a limited amount of time in this life. We should work while it's day. Work while we have the opportunity to do so. And, and, and as believers, as believers saved by grace, we're so uncomfortable with the idea of works in our, in our processing of salvation. And rightly so, in some ways. We understand this not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace he has saved us. At the same time, Scripture testifies that faith without works is dead. And Jesus over and over and over again is, is, is emphasizing the works of the Father. We ought to be doing the works of the Father. And the opportunities will come. If, if our focus and our passion and our priority is the works of the Father, the opportunities will come and people will ask us to take them to Jesus. So um, as the worship team can come up, um, next week we're going to deal with the aftermath, how the Jews and the Pharisees wrestle with what they've seen. Jesus has been revealed to them. Right, his, his mission accomplished in that sense. Revelation has happened. And now what do we do with Jesus? What do we do when he says, um, you're still, you can't see because you're still blind? Some of you still need healing um, for your vision. So let's pray. Lord, you are so, oh, you're so good. Your grace is so abounding. 
Father, I pray we would take seriously what we read. I pray we would take seriously what we claim to believe, that you change us, that you make us new creations, brand new creations from the inside out, unrecognizable to the world around us. Father, I pray that we would live that reality out. I pray that not in our own strength and not by our own will or by our own plans, uh, but by, by completely uh, dying to ourselves and submitting ourselves to the will of the Holy Spirit and the power of the cross in Christ. Father, I pray that we would walk in that reality um, and that um, the others who encounter us, Father, I pray that others who encounter us would see you, would see Jesus in us, not for our glory, but Lord, so that they can be drawn to your love and drawn to your kingdom and that you'd be glorified in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.